All right. Well, good morning and welcome to another Wednesday briefing. Uh, it's November 9th today. Well, tomorrow, as you know, we recorded the day before. Um, this is the first time we've been recording in the morning, actually, Yermius. Normally, it's it's the evening times we record these, and it sort of it feels like there's a different energy. We've got coffee instead of gin. Yeah, uh, for sure. It's interesting. And I was just thinking there, I wonder what time people usually listen to this show. Do they use it when they're on their way to work? Are they in work? Is it in the evenings when they're chilling out? Yeah, that's a good question. I uh, personally, I listen to podcasts almost exclusively or exclusively during the day. Uh, when I'm out working or doing something else, then I, that's when I have time to listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. Or I take myself time to do that. Yeah, I tend to like actually go to bed earlier if i'm like if there's a particular podcast i know there's a new episode out i like get myself to bed a bit earlier just so i can kind of sit and just like no distractions sort of enjoy the conversation well i i suppose it depends on the on the podcast like if it was something like a a three-hour fucking joe rogan podcast or something i would probably just have that playing during the day but yeah, let us know when you guys listen, like, because maybe the content can be tailored to that. Like, maybe if it's a morning kind of coffee brief as opposed to an evening sipper, you know, we could have uh, some coffee sounds in the background, some sort of lounge sort of setting kind of thing, <laughs> <Yeah>. or <laughs> some jazz playing lightly yeah, in the background. Yeah. That would be more evening, though, wouldn't it? I don't know. Jazz always works. Jazz always works. Jazz always works. We 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 talk, we talk, we yeah uh, we put on a bit of Miles Davis sometimes in the mornings for our coffee. Nice. But uh, I can't wait to get into today's uh, topic because uh, it's one of these sort of boreal skills that I'm very new to, and this is definitely more your kind of territory. And uh, you were on a ski making course this weekend, am I right? Yeah, a traditional all wooden ski making course so not um not laminating wood together um to make a ski but from solid wood i made mine from pine and um that was very cool. that was a lot of fun it was it was so much fun to do that and to to shape them to steam them to bend them to get the whole process done really from uh, a piece of lumber to uh, two pairs of skis very cool and i they we're definitely going to get into that because the the ski as a as an object even in and of itself is quite a symbolic thing in the north especially in finland like it's it's kind of served its purposes very very much sort of shaped a bit of the history of the country as well in regards to like the wars and things like that i mean all, um, all over scandinavia um yeah it's yeah. It's, it's scandinavia uh, Russia, so Siberia, and in China is where skiing has been sort of historically the biggest, uh, has had its biggest footholds. Right, I didn't know China. That's interesting. Well, I suppose it makes sense. No, there are some peaks. really like 5,000-year-old 5, wall paintings wow. in in, um, in in China, in the Xinjiang, I'm sorry for if I'm butchering that completely, uh, region. Uh, which is now sort of China. Um, there's cave paintings, wall paintings that suggest that they've been skiing there. And then there's a rich history in the Altai Mountains in China wow. of making wooden skis. And there's some really good and fun videos on YouTube of how they make wooden skis in uh, the Altai region. Amazing. I didn't know. I had no idea. 
But yeah, let's get into that later on in this episode. But firstly, I do want to say uh, thanks to everybody who's been joining us on Patreon so far. It's been so great to have such an awesome support network there. Um, hopefully you're enjoying the bonus content that we have up there. If there's anything that you think that you'd like to see more of, I did a poll recently and um, the content that seems to be the most desirable is the sort of the the educational ones that we've been doing, the knowledge hub, which is kind of, kind of cool. So it means that we're kind of on the right track That's in terms cool. of yeah, delivering what people like. Um, last week, we had three new members. We had Backgarden Bushcraft. We had Mark Lychok. I hope you're saying, saying your second in there properly, Mark. And we had Brian Van Damme join us. Um, so I'll be getting patches out to everybody who's joined over the last kind of couple of months really soon. So stand by for that. Um and also, actually, while we're on that topic, um, this coming Friday, we're going to be releasing a premiere of my next sort of mini documentary. Uh, it was called Unbound, which I filmed with an old college friend of mine. We were down in the south of Sweden around Imeln at the end of the summer. Um, we did it with the bike company Canyon, if anybody's familiar with them. Um, but it was mainly sort of a bike packing trip, but there's a, you know, there's loads of bushcraft cooking canoeing all sorts in there um so if you want to tune in and watch that with us on friday um this coming friday um you can go to patreon.com forward slash trial by fire podcast um and i'll be there uh, on friday and we can kind of watch this live and in the evening time it's going to be really fun and uh yeah of course you know every member on there helps us keep the lights on and all you'll also get access to all the other stuff that Jeremias and I have been working on that we just mentioned there, the the educational episodes, the knowledge hub, um, weekly recommendations for books and podcasts and kit, early access to interviews and episodes. Um, so yeah, and of course you help us out. So um, yeah, get over there if you can to help us out. We really, really appreciate it. I got an email in response to our clothing episode, Jeremias, a few weeks ago um, that I actually forgot to read out. So I wanted to trail back and sort of read that out. Um, and I'm really interested to hear what you Which think. Which of the clothing episodes was this? Just to <laughs> It was the one that. recently. I think we did a briefing and it wasn't. Right. It yep. was. Remember, we were talking about how you don't need to do buy a whole load of new stuff to kind of try out new things. Yep. And I got an email in from a man named Rob Pasco. And by the looks of it, he seems like he's quite experienced in the outdoors and he actually kind of went against his own intuition and took the advice of someone um and it, he ended up regretting it so he was saying that he really enjoys the episodes especially the wednesday discussions so thanks man i'm, I'm glad you enjoy them um he says it's good to ask for advice but there's no obligation to follow that especially if you feel if it doesn't work in your own preferences or experience he says, I've been outdoors for most of my life, 47 years, and work daily outside in all weathers in my job. As such, I've really grown to appreciate the lightweight, breathable waterproofs, which are now available. My favorite being an ultralight long smock from a well-known New Zealand outdoor company. He says, however, I recently undertook an advanced survival course, uh, a UK bushcraft company, which recommended taking a heavyweight waterproof. I discussed this with one of the instructors ahead of the course, and this heavyweight is... Um, his best was reinforced, so I duly parted with my well-earned money for a heavyweight smock which has become synonymous with bushcraft from the same New Zealand company. 
Whilst most of the course was dry, one day yielded weather warning for torrential rain and felt smug in my choice of heavyweight bushcrafters waterproof. However, the weather coming in fe- feeling was short-lived as the soft-faced fabric absorbed all the rain, uh, which was exposed, uh, making it several kilos heavier and reducing its breathability to almost zero. I was then sweating profusely in a very heavy coat whilst trying to function under difficult conditions. Whilst it kept the rain out, it's definitely very robust. These negatives I encountered really made me question why I hadn't stuck to what I know works for me. The point I'm making is don't ignore your personal preferences or experience when taking advice or purchasing an item of clothing just because it's been seen as a must-have or do thing in bushcraft. It won't necessarily enhance your experience or be better than what you already have. Thanks for all the time and work you put into the podcast. They're a great source of information. Best wishes, Rob. I think it is extremely important to never discredit your own experience and opinions of something, especially when it comes to something that is so extremely subjective as Mm -hmm. what is the best piece of outdoor clothing or best piece of outdoor equipment. It is, you can of course look at uh, things that is that you're able to um, what's the word I'm looking for? Quantify like how well does this hold up in you know in a mechanical machine that is testing tear strength? That's something you can say like this is on paper better than something else. Mm. But then when it comes to mm-hmm. like what works as a rain jacket, if you spent your most of your life outdoors and work out that uh, work outside um, daily in all different types of weathers, you most likely have something that works very well for you. So these are things that never should be uh, mm-hmm. sort of discredited, your own your own experience. There is a lot to say, though, with, with um, getting information from peers mm-hmm. or figures of, of uh, authority, whether it's perceived or actual figures of authority. Uh, it doesn't necessarily matter. You should always have an open mind to other people's experience and what they think is good because you could always learn something mm-hmm. from it. But there's nothing. There, there's no... I, li- I like mm-hmm. exactly what, what uh, Rob here said, that there's no... Um, what is it called? Obligation. There's no obligation to take someone else's opinion as gospel. If exactly. you feel like you're doing that, you have the stuff that you need. Go for it. You shouldn't have to. If you have something that works, whether it's a weekend course or whatnot, you shouldn't have to go out of your way and pay out of your nose. On top of all the other things that you might need for a course or a a weekend, whatever it might be, to feel comfortable going out, especially if you have some experience in in the um, in your backpack already yeah i agree and i think that uh that was kind of my key takeaway as well was that sort of you know and i think a lot of people need to hear that you know just because you ask for someone's advice it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to take it or that you have to like implement it in any way you know and i think like you said there you trust your own experiences you know how your body runs how how hot you run you know how cold, how quickly you get cold. You know everybody's bodies are different, body fat and everything can have a huge impact on, you know, 
how quickly you overheat and even in what parts of the world you're in. And, and that's sort of one of the things that sort of tends to bother me as well on, on these sort of when people are asking for advice on social media platforms and they will get like a hundred responses from people's personal preferences. Oh, but hands down, this one is my, this is the best or this is the best and this is the best. And I think you end up being more confused at the end of that than like sort of then you kind of went into it and people aren't asking the questions like well what parts of the world are you in what's your budget you know even things like you know do you run hot do you run cold do you sleep cold <clears throat> all of these are really important factors um and also like the garment or the product itself has to be sort of fit for purpose because i kind of i'm, I'm assuming the company he's talking about is ridgeline um it's the only uh, New Zealand company I know that makes smocks. Um, no, Swazi. Oh, Swazi does as well. That's true. Um, but I, I had a similar, because what he's saying there about that sort of um, the soft fabric uh, waterproof layer. And I believe that that is the stuff that's on, usually on hunting smocks because it's quiet and it doesn't rustle too much when, um, when animals are about, I owned a deer hunter version of that. Uh, if you know the company Deer Hunter, very similar sort of uh, makes or builds to that Ridgeline style. And I also found that I was extremely hot in it very, very quickly. And I realized that probably this garment isn't designed for traipsing through the woods with back with a backpack or whatever. It's for kind of, it's for hunters, isn't it? It's for someone who's sort of sitting tight, hunkering down, sort of being in maybe quite a prone position for quite a long time, something like that might be okay or valuable. But for if you're out there kind of doing bushcraft stuff, maybe those big heavyweight smocks that are mainly designed for hunting are probably not the best solution anyway. So I don't know. I mean, I could be wrong about that, but that's my sort of instinct on it based on the one that I owned or the one that I had, which I sold after a couple of trips because it was too warm. I mean, I do, I do like and appreciate that soft, quiet fabric, and uh, I would, uh, from my personal experience, I would argue um, that they are definitely, depending on which one you get, um, mm -hmm. you can hundred percent use it for moving about and and doing bushcrafty things. Within okay. air quotes here, okay, because um, hunting is just as diverse as bushcraft. It could be that you're sitting. At a you know at a in a in a tower waiting for an animal to pass by, just as you could just be mm -hmm. sitting in the forest doing something very very sort of uh, that doesn't really get your pulse up where you're sitting, and it could be that you're tracking an animal mm -hmm. and you're moving about with a backpack and everything. So it's the 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 fabric is is valuable for um, a lot of reasons. But yeah, his his point is still very good. Um, don't ignore your personal preferences, preferences or experience when taking advice or purchasing purchasing an item of clothing or gear mm -hmm. for that matter. Um, mm -hmm. There's yeah, there's there, there's so much to be yeah, said. Yeah, we could have a whole episode on it in and of itself. Yeah, ex exactly. And when it comes to if it's suitable for hunting, if it's suitable for bushcraft, if it's suitable for this, if it's suitable for that. None of those things matters because it's it's all personal, personal preference. It's all geared towards yeah, personal preference. But all of these things are outdoor activities. So we can go back to the you know what defines as it being bushcraft. What defines it being hunting? Can I do both at the same time? Or if I take a fishing rod, what am I doing then? 
So it's finding clothing that works for you. And I find myself like a rain jacket for me is something. Uh, I, I, I I stopped using rain jackets. Well, I do have one, which is like this sort of PVC, just waterproof, non-breathable type of thing that I use if I'm out with the dogs, for example, if I'm out, out working by the river and I know it's raining, raining, raining. I want something that is bulletproof when it comes to um, rain clothing. It's a long, it's down to my knee, so it's a long sort of... Um, like, like a, yeah, like a poncho? No, 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 it's not a poncho. It's a it's a zip, okay. zip up kind of thing. But if I'm out hiking gotcha. or doing something like that, I will take a poncho. Mm. Because from my region and where I'm at and what I do, um, I will be very unlucky if I'm going to be out in three days of rain straight straight three days of, of rain then a poncho that is quick to put on easy to stow away that i don't have to wear as my sort of windbreaker layer uh, another layer is much better than wearing a waterproof as my windproof as well because gotcha. then i will end up being sweaty yeah it's they get very warm so there's there, there's so much nuance and everything so i really like a lightweight just like this guy really like a lightweight uh raincoat type of thing for when it's actually raining and when it's not raining, put that away, wear something that's good and breathable. Yeah. 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 No, I, I agree with you. I, I, myself, I have a small Patagonia rain jacket that I, yeah, like that. I can just like, it kind of will tuck into itself, into its own pocket, essentially that you can just stow away in the top of your backpack. And in order than that, it's like, if it's not raining or if it's, if it's, even if it's drizzle, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be, It'll be a long time before I go, right, I have to put the rain jacket on. Because if you're not wet on the outside, you're wet on the inside after a while. Yeah. Yeah. But that's very good advice for this guy. Very good advice from him. Um, there's always, depending on where you are, depending on who you are, everything, there's always uh, a lot of value to ask around. And then when you see, you know, do your your own homework kind of thing, um and then make up your own mind. On a course, the good thing is that they should be the 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 instructors and the company and whatnot should be paying enough attention to make sure that you're not gonna perish, you're not gonna die from making the wrong maybe the wrong uh, rain jacket mistake. You might learn something very valuable from it if it's not the right one. Um, and it might humble you if it's not the right one, but at the same time, those 300 pounds, 400, whatever a rain jacket might cost, might be worth putting on something else. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Uh, Rob, thank you for for sending in that email. It's really, really interesting, and I think you're probably not the first person that's come across this sort of thing happening to them. Um, but shall we move on to our topic today, because we're actually quite far into this episode already <laughs> see we're like 20 minutes in which is interesting um it's uh this is a topic that i have been interested in for a long time although admittedly i have very little experience in um like we said the, the kind of boreal skiing uh sort of cross-country skiing and it's sort of it's uh it's value i suppose up here and uh, what did you learn from crafting apart from i suppose the technical side of um 
you know, hewing the the wood and and things like that. Was there any sort of like uh, takeaways from it that you hadn't thought about before in terms of the value of having a tool like this and the skill set required to sort of make them on the fly or make them as you need them? The um, the value of it is um, I didn't necessarily get a different understanding of the value of it uh, for me, but my big takeaway from this is um, there's a huge difference in between the sort of modern industrial person's mind of what's something that's good versus the finds of skis, um, like historical finds of skis that, that exists. So we're, what I mean mm-hmm. with that is when we're making skis on this course, for example, the, the course uh, instructor, he was very good at, at uh, what he did and explained it in such a nice way of, uh, you know, we as sort of modern people, we don't, we don't want these sort of necessarily ugliness of knots in the wood. And we, we, we think that that is a... Um, a uh, weakness and a, a, a things like uh, think something that's not going to make it last as long um, which like mm-hmm. fully understand fully agree and it says it as well like it is true that that's what happens but at the same time uh, back then so skis has been around for 5,000 6,000 years um the old, the old ski, one yeah, of the oldest skis was found in the just a couple of hours south of here, and it's uh, believed to be like five thousand years old, five thousand oh, five hundred wow. years old. Um, skis used to be just as anything back then; it was a tool, and of course there were there there were artisanal ski makers that really focused on making a pair of skis. Um, but historically, people didn't necessarily buy skis. They made their own, and when they broke, they made a new pair. And finding and sourcing the perfect perfect piece of wood was not always the case. So a lot of the skis um, that has been found has a lot of knots in them, a lot of sort of things that we would consider being not good enough to make a pair of skis, because we... As modern people, we want them to last as long as possible. It's a sort of artisanal build that has a lot of value in in it being handmade kind of thing. While just as you know, spoons and bowls and whatnot and cooks us that we put a lot of effort into and people sell them for a lot of good money, which is completely fine. And they put a lot of car- you know effort into carving. That was not necessarily what the common person was doing way back. They were making a tool, a tool to, to, uh, to utilize. When it broke, they made a new one. So looking for, always looking for the perfect... My main takeaway was always looking for the perfect piece of wood or material to work with. It's not necessary. You can make a fully functioning pair of skis of something that might seem uh, quite shitty from a, you know, a modern person's perspective of what's the perfect piece of wood right and make it work it might last you one or two or three seasons but then you make a new pair right so that's sort of the the sort of it's the sort of beauty of of simplifying everything instead of always looking for the next perfect thing it's like make do with what you have the ephemeral sort of quality of something that uh it's it's like like you, you hear people say all the time like you know Oh, I I, I kind of work my tools like I, I look after them but I also work them hard because they're tools and they're not toys and 
And I think the same can be said of like any sort of outdoor tools in general, not just a ski, I suppose you could argue it, it's a tool or a mode of transport or something like that. But um, I, I, I think it's the same when it comes to sort of our axes and saws and, and the knives and things. And there's no point in kind of fetishizing them sometimes when like when you're not allowing them or not like letting them u- be used for to their sort of actual intended purpose because they cost so much money almost sort of defeats the value of of an object in and of its like usefulness then as well like you know um but then i think as well like what you're saying there about uh not being able to get the perfect material for a pair of skis for example i as far as i remember ray mears's episode when he was in the boil and he was making that pair of skis um i think they said he said he used they used the same the wood from the same side of the tree because if they couldn't use because the way in which a tree grows obviously it gets more sun on one side than the other so the tree isn't perfectly round and it gets more sun on one side so the tree rings maybe are slightly thicker on one side so you have to kind of be careful and in selecting like what part of the the actual log you're using so even in and of that like okay you might not be able to find the perfect piece of wood to work from but i think being smart about using what you do have to the best of your ability also kind of is a nice oh, skill. Oh, definitely, definitely, and that is that is the, that is the sort of um, make, making a pair of skis. I didn't find it to be hard in that way, just because it is quite intuitive. Uh, if you've been working with wood before, it's not necessarily mm. a complicated process uh, yeah. whatsoever. It takes time. the The hard part is to learn how to identify and source good material and make the most out of each pair of log or each log that you're taking down and then to of course getting into a perfect perfectly smooth finish getting them completely symmetrical bending them steam bending them so there's there's so many things in the process of making a pair of skis where someone's uh, skill set and experience and expertise in it is really really showing mm. uh, but making a pair of skis that would that would fully function um i would i would almost argue that if you can if you can if you can carve a spoon you can definitely make a pair of skis that would function might not be the best looking might not be the the um uh, most perfect skis but you can definitely make a pair of skis that will do you good during winter Right, and, and I suppose the same with in the in the spring and summertime when it comes to carving uh, paddles as well. I've seen a lot of that as well with people who are really skilled in spoon carving actually finding the transition to kind of almost like a large spoon shape really in a sort of a canoe paddle. Um, also quite an intuitive uh, action or motion if you're used to carving spoons. Um, speaking of, actually, it's slightly off topic and we're actually starting to run out of time here. Maybe there's a part two on this one because uh, I do actually want to hear about the process and things. We're running out of time here. But um, somebody was mentioning on the Patreon that they would like to see um, a knowledge of episode based on spoon carving. Now, while I don't know if I could fill a whole hour um, of educate of an educational episode maybe i could but maybe there's one in kind of carving in general and sloyd and like all of these sort of uh activities that can be achieved in the sort of the cross in the sort of the skill set that you acquire from being able to identify the right piece of wood being able to like keep your tools maintained being able to understand grain direction so you're not going to split your 
project in half, whether it's a spoon mm. or whether it's a ski or something. That could be an, an interesting uh, an interesting series for for people if they're interested in that oh for sure that would be very interesting it'd be really nice to do that one it would be like nice to talk about this more maybe as i said maybe next week we can kind of continue on about the actual process involved um because the all the whole like towering and like finding the right piece of wood and i want to hear what tools you're using and things like that um do you think maybe we should we should wait until next week and kind of dig into that one a bit more we can for sure do that yeah for sure um but look let's leave it there because i think we kind of covered a lot in that episode and um yeah we're, we're hitting the half hour mark here so and if there's anyone that has any questions in in regards to making the skis i'm by no means any expert um whatsoever but if there's any sort of specifics that you would like to ask in how i found the process uh, of making a pair of skis Feel free to reach out. Yeah, and we're gonna put up um, some photos of your Mises skis on the uh, on the on the Instagram page later on, um, whenever or whenever he gets a chance to get those photos to me because they look really really nice from the, the the phone shots that you sent me. They look really beautiful. So um, check those out on our Instagram page if you're interested in seeing uh, what Jeremias came up with. Really lovely work, man. I am surprised that they were your first pair of skis because they were look they looked beautiful man how did you do the the um just one question before we leave but how did you do the the sort of the 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 dog prints and stuff was that like just a little kind of scalpel sort of thing or no it's uh i don't i don't really know what it's called we it, it the tool is called yet foot uh in swedish which translates to goat's foot but um it's basically a v-shaped chisel gotcha so i just uh, freehand drew the the dog print, and then I followed the uh, line with the chisel. Really nice, lovely work. Sort of get that indent into the wood. Yeah, yeah, lovely man. Well, are you going to use them actually this year? You're just going to have them on display in the. Oh no no no! I'm not. I'm I'm going to use them. I I. Ah, brilliant. I um, I can't really make something for display. That's that's way out of my sort of uh, mindset, and also out of mindset. my skill level. Like I can't. <laughs> I'm not at that point where. It would it would it would feel too it would feel too um, uh, not northern or it would feel yeah it would feel too uh, braggish to put something on display can't do that <laughs> right <laughs> I know exactly what you mean man Yente Logan yeah <laughs> all right man well look as I said everybody check those out we're gonna put them up on the Instagram. Uh, at some point probably today or tomorrow um and in the meantime as i said check out the the patreon stuff and oh and speaking of i found a bunch of cool pdfs actually um that i've kind of scoured and looked for in preparation for this episode and actually didn't end up really using any of them um but there's some really cool ones on sort of winter um winter military um sort of manuals for swedish and and kind of things like that uh, and nato and things from the 80s which are really interesting and it shows all the sort of nice. instructions on how to keep your skis and how to how to use them in, in sort of military things so i'm going to put them up uh, together as a as a kind of a, a little article on the patreon so if you're interested you can go on there and you can download all these pdfs and you can have a scare through them yourself and uh, one of them is actually the winter soldier um Swedish Army Manual written by none other than Johan Skullman in the 90s. And that was a really interesting article or um, 
PDF in and of itself. So if you're interested, you can go and download those. I'll be putting them up tomorrow as well. Cool. I have that. I have that book. Oh, you do? Yeah, you have it in uh, in print, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is it the Swedish version? Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. Yeah, they print they printed it in English as well. So I, I have the I found the PDF in English, so anybody can read it. Um. Well, yeah. I, did you have anything to add to that before we say goodbye, Hermes? Uh, no. Keep um, keep well. Yeah, I said no, and then I'm talking. <laughs> uh, keep us. Uh, please continue to send in um, thoughts and uh, opinions and whatever else it might be. It's always fun to hear uh, what your guys' thoughts are and uh, let us know if there's anything you would like us to go deeper into as well. Definitely. Definitely. All right, guys, have a have a great week and we'll talk to you very soon. Take care. Bye bye.